0: and welcome to this episode of our podcast. Today, we will be discussing the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Review's First Quarter 2014 issue, which focuses on the labor force participation rate in the United States. The labor force participation rate is a measure of the percentage of the population that is either employed or actively seeking employment. It is an important indicator of the health of the labor market and the overall economy. In recent years, the labor force participation rate in the United States has been declining, which has raised concerns among policymakers and economists. The first article in this issue of the review is written by James Bullard, the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Bullard reviews some of the available literature on the labor force participation rate and concludes that carefully constructed, demographically-based empirical models of the hump-shaped trend in the U.S. labor force participation rate do a good job of explaining the data. and These models suggest that the current participation rate is not far from the predicted trend. This means, in turn, that the cyclical component in labor force participation is likely to be relatively small. To the extent these models are correct, then, the observed unemployment rate remains as good an indicator of overall labor market health as it has been historically. In particular, the recent, relatively rapid declines in unemployment can be understood as representing an improving labor market. This is the judgment that should inform monetary policy going forward. The second article in this issue is written by Arwoba S. Borrigan, Davis, Morris A. and Wright, Randall. They discuss the role of home production in the economy and how it affects the labor force participation rate. Home production refers to the production of goods and services within the household, such as cooking, cleaning, and child care. The authors argue that home production is an important factor in the labor force participation rate, as it can affect the decision of individuals to participate in the labor market. For example, if the cost of child care is high, some parents may choose to stay at home and take care of their children instead of working. The authors suggest that policymakers should take into account the role of home production when designing policies to address the decline in labor force participation. The third article in this issue is written by Bengali, Daly, and Valletta. They study the correlation in the changes in employment and labor force participation in state-level data to gain insight into the decline in labor force participation. They conclude that a substantial cyclical component exists in the observed aggregate decline in labor force participation, which is related to the weak labor market conditions following the Great Recession They also find that demographic factors, such as an aging population and changes in educational attainment, have contributed to the decline in labor force participation. Overall, this issue of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Review provides a comprehensive analysis of the labor force participation rate in the United States. It highlights the importance of understanding the various factors that contribute to the decline in labor force participation, including cyclical and demographic factors as well as the role of home production. The articles also suggest that policymakers should take a nuanced approach to addressing the decline in labor force participation, taking into account the different factors that affect individuals' decisions to participate in the labor market. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. We hope you found this discussion informative and insightful. Be sure to tune in next time for more discussions on important economic Hello and welcome to today's episode of our podcast. Today, we'll be discussing a fascinating report on the Great Trade Collapse and Rebound, published by the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Review. The report examines a historic episode in trade history that affected countries throughout the world. The Great Trade Collapse, GTC, was a sharp decline in global trade that occurred in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. The report provides a state-by-state view of the impact of the GTC on the U.S. export sector and analyzes the factors that contributed to the subsequent rebound in exports. One of the key findings of the report is that the U.S. experience during the GTC was similar to prior trade declines. While there were concerns that the collapse would transform firms from exporters into strictly domestic firms or drive them out of business, this fear did not materialize. The sharp decline in exports during the GTC was quickly followed by a sharp rebound, and the percentage change in exports far exceeded the contemporaneous percentage change in GDP. The report also examines the intensive and extensive trade margins and shows that the adjustment occurred to a greater extent on the intensive than on the extensive trade margin. In other words, the adjustment process entailed relatively larger changes in average exports per firm than in the number of exporting firms, This finding is consistent with the results for the majority of states and suggests that it is much easier to alter existing export levels than to eliminate all exports by a firm and either restart exports by this firm or become a new entrant into exporting. So, what were the main factors that contributed to the rebound in exports? The report identifies several factors, including the depreciation of the US dollar, the recovery of global demand, and the diversification of export markets. The depreciation of the US dollar made US exports more competitive in foreign markets, while the recovery of global demand led to an increase in demand for US exports. The diversification of export markets also played a role, as US exporters began to explore new markets in Asia and Latin America. Overall, the report provides a fascinating look at the impact of the Great Trade Collapse on the US export sector and the factors that contributed to the subsequent rebound in exports. It highlights the resiliency of the U.S. export sector and the importance of diversification in times of economic uncertainty. That's all for today's episode of our podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Hey, okay. Thank you for listening to today's episode of our podcast. We hope you found the report on the Great Trade Collapse, and Rebound Informative and Insightful. If you're interested in learning more about the topic, we encourage you to read the full report published by the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Review. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. We love hearing from our listeners and value your feedback. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on social media for updates on future episodes. Hello and welcome to our podcast. Today, we will be discussing the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Review, a publication that explores the evolution of Federal Reserve policy and its impact on asset prices. The Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Review is a quarterly publication that features articles written by economists and researchers from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis and, and other institutions. The articles cover a wide range of topics, related to macroeconomics monetary policy and financial markets one of the main themes of the publication is the impact of federal reserve policy on asset prices the articles explore how changes in interest rates and other monetary policy tools affect the prices of stocks bonds and other financial assets they also examine how financial markets react to news and announcements from the federal reserve such as changes in the federal funds rate or statements from the Federal Open Market Committee Another important theme of the publication is the use of econometric models to study the effects of monetary policy on macroeconomic variables. The articles discuss different methods for estimating the impact of policy-induced changes in interest rates on variables such as inflation, output, and employment. They also explore the challenges that arise when trying to isolate the effects of monetary policy from other factors that influence the economy. One of the key takeaways from the publication is the importance of transparency in Federal Reserve policymaking. The articles suggest that financial markets' expectations of monetary policy have become more accurate as the Federal Reserve has become more transparent in its objectives and procedures. This has helped to reduce uncertainty and volatility in financial markets, which in turn has contributed to more stable economic growth. Overall, the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Review is a valuable resource for anyone interested in macroeconomics, monetary policy, and financial markets. The articles are written in a clear and accessible style, making them accessible to a broad audience. Whether you are a student, a researcher, or a policymaker, you are sure to find something of interest in this publication. In conclusion, the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Review is an excellent publication that provides valuable insights into the workings of the Federal Reserve and its impact on the economy. The articles are well-researched and provide a wealth of information on a wide range of topics related to macroeconomics, monetary policy, and financial markets. Whether you are a seasoned economist or just starting out, this publication is sure to provide you with valuable insights and information that will help you better understand the complex world of macroeconomics and monetary policy. So, if you are interested in these topics, be sure to check out the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Review and see what it has to Hello and welcome to our podcast on representative neighborhoods of the United States. Today, we'll be discussing an important topic that affects millions of Americans, the way that neighborhoods are formed and how they impact our lives. Neighborhoods are more than just places to live. They are social and economic units that shape our experiences and opportunities. They can be defined by a variety of factors, including race, income, education, and culture. In many cases, Neighborhoods are segregated along these lines, creating disparities in access to resources and opportunities, and today is an expert on this topic, and has written a comprehensive PDF on the subject. The PDF explores the existence of a suitable, representative neighborhood characterization of metropolitan U.S. data. Such a characterization allows complex neighborhood-level data to be simplified. A simple characterization permits a transparent interpretation of data through models featuring a small number of neighborhoods with the advantage that the characterization has a direct geographic counterpart. One of the key findings of the PDF is that neighborhoods can be represented by a small number of variables, such as income, race, and housing prices. By focusing on these variables, researchers can gain a better understanding of how neighborhoods are formed and how they impact our lives, The PDF also explores the changing nature of neighborhoods over time. For example, it notes that many neighborhoods have become more diverse in recent years as more people of different races and ethnicities move into urban areas. However, it also notes that many neighborhoods remain highly segregated, particularly along racial and economic lines. Another important topic covered in the PDF is the impact of neighborhoods on economic mobility. Research has shown that children who grow up in low-income neighborhoods are less likely to achieve economic success as adults. This is due in part to the lack of resources and opportunities available in these neighborhoods, as well as the negative effects of living in areas with high levels of poverty and crime. The PDF also discusses some of the challenges facing policymakers and urban planners as they work to create more equitable and sustainable communities. These challenges include addressing issues such as affordable housing, transportation, and access to quality education and health care. Overall, the PDF provides a comprehensive overview of the complex factors that contribute to the formation of neighborhoods in the United States. By understanding these factors, we can work to create more equitable and sustainable communities that provide opportunities for all Americans. Thank you for listening to our podcast on representative neighborhoods of the United States. Thank you for listening to our podcast on representative neighborhoods of the United States. We hope that you found this discussion informative and thought provoking. As we've discussed, neighborhoods are complex social and economic units that shape our experiences and opportunities. By understanding the factors that contribute to the formation of neighborhoods, we can work to create more equitable and sustainable communities that provide opportunities for all Americans. If you're interested in learning more about this topic, we encourage you to read the PDF that we've been discussing. It provides a wealth of information on the subject and is a valuable resource for anyone interested in understanding the American urban landscape. Thank you again for listening, and we hope that you'll join us Hello and welcome to our podcast on a guide to tracking the U.S. economy. Today, we will be discussing the ins and outs of economic forecasting and analysis, and how you can use this knowledge to make informed decisions about your personal finances or business strategies. First, let's start with the basics. Economic forecasting is the process of predicting the future performance of the economy based on past and current trends, This can involve analyzing a wide range of economic variables, such as GDP growth, inflation rates, interest rates, consumer spending, and more. By understanding how these variables interact with each other, economists and analysts can make educated guesses about where the economy is headed in the short and long term. So why is economic forecasting important? Well, for starters, it can help individuals and businesses make better decisions about their finances. For example, If you're thinking about buying a house or investing in the stock market, you'll want to have a good sense of where the economy is headed so you can make informed decisions about when to buy or sell. Similarly, if you're a business owner, you'll want to know whether the economy is likely to grow or contract in the coming months so you can adjust your business strategy accordingly. Of course, economic forecasting is not an exact science. There are many factors that can influence the performance of the economy, and it's impossible to predict the future with 100% accuracy. However, by using a combination of historical data, statistical models, and expert analysis, economists and analysts can make reasonably accurate predictions about where the economy is headed. Now, let's dive into the specifics of a guide to tracking the U.S. economy. This PDF file is a comprehensive resource for anyone who wants to learn more about economic forecasting and analysis. It covers a wide range of topics, from the basics of economic indicators to more advanced techniques for analyzing and forecasting the economy. One of the key takeaways from this guide is that there are many different economic indicators that can be used to track the performance of the economy. These include things like GDP growth, inflation rates, unemployment rates, consumer spending, and more. By tracking these indicators over time, economists and analysts, Can get a sense of how the economy is performing and make predictions about where it's headed. Another important point to keep in mind is that economic forecasting is not just about crunching numbers, it also involves understanding the broader context in which the economy operates, such as political and social trends, technological advancements, and global economic conditions. By taking all of these factors into account, economists and analysts can develop a more nuanced understanding of the Economy and make more accurate predictions about its future performance. One of the challenges of economic forecasting is that the economy is constantly changing and evolving. New technologies, political events, and other factors can have a significant impact on the economy, making it difficult to predict with certainty what will happen in the future. However, by staying up to date on the latest economic data and trends, and by using a variety of forecasting techniques, economists and analysts can make informed predictions about where the economy is headed. Overall, a guide to tracking the U.S. economy is an excellent resource for anyone who wants to learn more about economic forecasting and analysis. Whether you're a business owner, investor, or just someone who wants to better understand the economy, this guide provides a wealth of information and insights that can help you make more informed decisions about your finances and your future. So if you're interested in learning more about Hello and welcome to our podcast. Today, we will be discussing the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Review's first quarter 2014 issue, which explores the portfolio balance effect of quantitative easing, QE, and its impact on the U.S. government debt. First, let's define what QE is. QE is a monetary policy tool used by central banks to stimulate the economy by increasing the money supply. This is done by purchasing government bonds or other securities from banks, which in turn increases the bank's reserves and allows them to lend more money to consumers and businesses. The goal of QE is to lower interest rates and encourage borrowing and investment, which can lead to economic growth. The article in this issue of the review explores the portfolio balance effect of QE, which is the idea that the Federal Reserve's purchases of government bonds can affect the yields and prices of those bonds as well as other assets such as stocks and real estate. The article argues that the portfolio balance effect can have a significant impact on the U.S. government debt, as it can affect the cost of borrowing for the government and the willingness of investors to hold government bonds. The article reviews previous empirical work in the literature and examines a variety of public debt, maturity, duration, and interest rate measures used in the literature. The author investigates the relationship between long-term yields and the public's holding of long-term debt using a wide array of public debt and bond yield measures found in the literature. Following previous studies, the author investigates the relationship within the context of a simple reduced-form framework that controls for a variety of macroeconomic and other variables. The article concludes that when the trend is accounted for, there is little. Evidence of a statistically significant effect of the Fed's LSAPs on yields and no evidence of an economically meaningful effect. This suggests that the portfolio balance effect of QE may not be as significant as previously thought, and that other factors such as economic growth and inflation may have a greater impact on the U.S. government debt. However, it is important to note that this is just one study, and that there is still much debate and discussion among economists about the effectiveness of QE and its impact on the economy. Some argue that QE can lead to inflation and asset bubbles, while others argue that it is necessary to stimulate the economy during times of recession. Overall, the article in the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Review's first quarter 2014 issue provides an interesting and informative analysis of the portfolio balance effect of QE and its impact on the U.S. government debt. It highlights the importance of considering a wide range of factors when analyzing the impact of monetary policy on the economy and the need for continued research and analysis in this area as always it is important to stay informed and engage with ongoing discussions and debates in the field of economics and to consider multiple perspectives when evaluating the effectiveness of different policy tools and approaches thank you for listening to our podcast and we hope you found this discussion and welcome to our podcast on the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. Today, we'll be discussing the impact of this landmark legislation on employment in the United States. The American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, or ARA, was signed into law by President Barack Obama in February 2009. The legislation was designed to stimulate the economy and create jobs in the wake of the Great Recession which had caused widespread unemployment and economic hardship across the country. The ARA included a wide range of measures aimed at boosting economic activity, including tax cuts, infrastructure spending, and funding for education, health care, and other social programs. In total, the legislation provided over $800 billion in fiscal stimulus over a period of several years. One of the key goals of the ARA was to create and preserve jobs. To this end, the legislation included funding for a variety of programs and initiatives aimed at supporting employment across a range of sectors. These included investments in infrastructure projects like roads, bridges, and public transportation, as well as funding for education and training programs, healthcare services, and renewable energy projects. Overall, the ARA was successful in creating and preserving jobs in the United States. According to a report by the Council of Economic Advisers, the legislation helped to create or preserve over 6 million jobs between 2009 and 2012. This included jobs in a wide range of industries, from construction and manufacturing to healthcare and education. However, the impact of the ARA on employment was not evenly distributed across the economy. As our PDF expert noted, much of the job support provided by the legislation occurred in the government sector, which tended to benefit workers with higher levels of education. This meant that the positive effects of the ARA were not felt as strongly by less-educated workers, who were more likely to be employed in the private sector. Despite these limitations, the ARA remains an important example of how government intervention can help to support employment and stimulate economic growth during times of crisis. The legislation provided critical support to millions of workers and families across the country helping to mitigate the worst effects of the Great Recession and laying the groundwork for a more stable and prosperous future. In conclusion, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act was a landmark piece of legislation that played a critical role in supporting employment and economic growth in the United States. While the impact of the legislation was not evenly distributed across the economy, It remains an important example of how government intervention can help to mitigate the effects of economic crises and support workers and families in times of need. Thank you for joining us on this podcast about the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. We hope you found this discussion informative and helpful in understanding the impact of this legislation on employment in the United States. If you have any questions or Hello and welcome to our podcast on the topic of factor based prediction of industry wide bank stress. Today, we will be discussing the requirements of the Dodd Frank Act and how it affects large U.S. bank holding companies. We will also provide insights on how the Federal Reserve System performs stress tests and chooses scenarios that are likely to be severely adverse for all banks simultaneously. The Dodd Frank Act was passed in 2010. In response to the financial crisis of 2008, it requires large U.S. bank holding companies to undergo annual stress tests to determine whether they have enough capital to withstand a severe economic downturn. The Federal Reserve System is responsible for conducting these stress tests and choosing scenarios that are likely to be severely adverse for all banks simultaneously. The stress tests are designed to assess the resilience of large U.S. bank-holding companies to a severe economic downturn. The Federal Reserve System uses a variety of scenarios to test the banks' ability to withstand different types of economic shocks. These scenarios are based on a range of economic and financial variables, such as GDP growth, unemployment rates, and stock prices. The Federal Reserve System uses a factor-based approach to predict industry-wide bank stress. This approach involves identifying a set of factors that are likely to be associated with a severe economic downturn and using these factors to construct a scenario that is likely to be severely adverse for all banks simultaneously. The factors used in the scenario are chosen based on their historical correlation with economic downturns and their ability to capture the key drivers of bank stress. The Federal Reserve System uses a variety of models to estimate the impact of the scenario on the bank's capital positions. These models take into account the bank's assets, liabilities, exposure to counterparty risk, and particular markets. The models also incorporate the bank's risk management practices and the potential for contagion effects across the financial system. The Federal Reserve System publishes the results of the stress tests on its website, The results include the bank's projected capital ratios under the severely adverse scenario and the Federal Reserve System's assessment of the bank's capital adequacy. The results also include a summary of the bank's risk management practices and the Federal Reserve System's recommendations for improving those practices. In conclusion, the Dodd-Frank Act requires large U.S. bank holding companies to undergo annual stress tests To determine whether they have enough capital to withstand a severe economic downturn, the Federal Reserve System uses a factor based approach to predict industry wide bank stress and chooses scenarios that are likely to be severely adverse for all banks simultaneously. The stress tests are designed to assess the resilience of large U.S. bank holding companies to a severe economic downturn and to ensure that they have adequate capital to continue operating in such a scenario. The results of the stress tests are published on the Federal Reserve System's website and provide valuable information to investors, regulators, and the public about the health of the banking industry. Thank you for listening to our podcast on factor based prediction of industry wide bank stress. We hope you found this information informative and useful. If you have any questions, Welcome to the FRED Podcast, where we explore the world of economic data and how it impacts our lives. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the history and evolution of FRED, the Federal Reserve Economic Data. FRED is a database of economic data that has become a valuable resource for economists, researchers, analysts, journalists, teachers, students, and anyone interested in the numbers driving today's economies. It was created by the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis in 1991, with the goal of making economic data more accessible and easier to use. Before FRED, accessing economic data was a time-consuming and difficult process. Researchers and analysts had to manually collect data from various sources, often in paper form, and then enter it into their own databases. This process was not only time-consuming, but also prone to errors and inconsistencies. FRED changed all that by providing a centralized database of economic data that could be accessed online. It started with just a few hundred series of data, but over the years it has grown to include thousands of series covering a wide range of economic indicators, from GDP and inflation to employment and housing. One of the key features of FRED is its user-friendly interface. Users can easily search for and download data series, create custom charts and graphs and even embed them in their own websites or presentations. FRED also provides a range of tools and resources to help users analyze and interpret the data, including tutorials, webinars, and a community forum. But FRED is more than just a database of economic data. It has become a platform for innovation and collaboration in the field of economics. Researchers and analysts can use FRED to share their own data series and analysis with others creating a community of users who are constantly pushing the boundaries of what is possible with economic data. FRED has also evolved over the years to keep up with the changing needs of its users. For example, it now includes real-time data series that are updated as soon as new data becomes available, allowing users to track economic trends in real time. It also includes data series from international sources, making it a truly global resource for economic data. In conclusion, Fred has revolutionized the way we access and use economic data. It has made economic data more accessible, easier to use, and more collaborative. Whether you're an economist, researcher, analyst, journalist, teacher, student, or just someone interested in the numbers driving today's economies, Fred has something to offer So why not explore the world of Fred and see how it can help you better understand the economic forces shaping our world today? Thank you for listening to the Fred Podcast, and we hope you join us again for Hello and welcome to this episode of our podcast. Today, we'll be discussing the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Review, second quarter 2014. This issue covers a range of topics related to U.S. monetary policy, including inflation targeting, Fed lending during the financial crisis, and post-crisis Fed policy. First, let's talk about inflation targeting. This is a monetary policy strategy that involves setting a specific target for inflation and using various tools to achieve that target. The idea is that by keeping inflation within a certain range, the central bank can help promote economic stability and growth. In the review, we learn about the history of inflation targeting and how it has been used in various countries around the world. We also hear from Ben Bernanke, former chairman of the Federal Reserve, who discusses the benefits and challenges of inflation targeting. Next, we turn to the financial crisis and the role of the Fed in responding to it. The review includes an article that examines the Fed's lending during the crisis and how it was influenced by Beigehot's rule. This rule, named after Walter Bagehot, a 19th-century British journalist and economist, suggests that during a financial crisis, central banks should lend freely to solvent banks at a penalty rate The idea is to provide liquidity to the banking system and prevent a panic. The article in the review looks at how the Fed applied this rule during the crisis and whether it was effective. Finally, we come to post-crisis Fed policy, which has included a number of experiments with forward guidance and quantitative easing. Forward guidance involves communicating to the public what the central bank expects to do in the future with regard to interest rates and other policy tools. The idea is to provide more certainty and stability to financial markets. Quantitative easing, on the other hand, involves buying large amounts of assets, such as government bonds, in order to inject more money into the economy and stimulate growth. The review includes an article that looks at the effectiveness of these policies and whether they have achieved their intended goals. Overall, the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Review Second Quarter 2014, Provides a fascinating look at U.S. monetary policy and the challenges faced by central banks in responding to economic crises. Whether you're an economist, a policymaker, or just someone interested in learning more about how the economy works, this issue is definitely worth a read. So be sure to check it out. In conclusion, the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Review Second Quarter 2014 is a valuable, Resource for anyone interested in understanding U.S. monetary policy. The articles in this issue cover a range of topics, from inflation targeting to Fed lending during the financial crisis to post crisis Fed policy. By reading this issue, you'll gain a deeper understanding of the challenges faced by central banks in promoting economic stability and growth. So if you're interested in economics or finance, be sure to check out the review and stay informed about the latest developments in U.S. monetary policy. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast, and we hope you found it informative and engaging. Hello and welcome to our podcast on the effects of terrorism on trade. Today, we will be discussing a recent article published by the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis titled Terrorism and International Trade, an Empirical Investigation. Terrorism is a global issue that has far-reaching consequences, including economic impacts. The conventional wisdom is that terrorism leads to higher transaction costs and reduced trade. However, The authors of this article, Supayu Bandiopadhyay and Todd Sandler, argue that this view is incomplete. They suggest that terrorism can also deplete a nation's supply of productive factors and dissuade foreign investors, which can have a significant impact on trade. To understand the author's argument, let's first define what we mean by productive factors. Productive factors are the resources that are used to produce goods and services, These include labor, capital, and natural resources. When terrorism occurs, it can disrupt the supply of these productive factors. For example, if a terrorist attack occurs in a region that produces a significant amount of a particular resource, such as oil, the supply of that resource may be disrupted. This can lead to higher prices and reduced availability of that resource, which can impact trade. In addition to the depletion of productive factors, Terrorism can also dissuade foreign investors. Foreign investors are often hesitant to invest in countries that are affected by terrorism. This is because terrorism can create an unstable environment, which can lead to increased risk for investors. When foreign investors are dissuaded from investing in a country, it can lead to reduced economic growth and trade. So how do these factor supply effects change the predictions of how terrorism affects trade? The authors argue that by taking these effects into account, the predictions of how terrorism affects trade may be reversed. In other words, the conventional wisdom that terrorism leads to reduced trade may not always hold true. To test their argument, the authors conducted an empirical investigation using data from 160 countries over the period 1,976-2000. They found that the factor supply effects of terrorism can have a significant impact on trade. In particular, they found that the depletion of productive factors and the dissuasion of foreign investors can lead to reduced exports and increased imports. Overall, the author's argument highlights the need to consider the broader economic impacts of terrorism. While the conventional wisdom suggests that terrorism leads to reduced trade, the authors argue that this view is incomplete. By taking into account the depletion of productive factors and the dissuasion of foreign investors, we can gain a more nuanced understanding of how terrorism affects trade. In conclusion, terrorism is a complex issue that has far-reaching consequences, including economic impacts. The authors of this article argue that the conventional wisdom that terrorism leads to reduced trade is incomplete. By taking into account the depletion of productive factors, and the dissuasion of foreign investors, we can gain a more complete understanding of how terrorism affects trade. This has important implications for policymakers and businesses that operate in regions affected by terrorism. By understanding the broader economic impacts of terrorism, we can develop more effective strategies for mitigating its effects and promoting economic growth. Thank you for listening to our podcast on the effects of terrorism on trade. We hope you found this discussion informative and thought-provoking. If you have any questions or comments, Hello and welcome to this episode of our podcast. Today, we will be discussing a very important topic that affects all of us, inflation. Inflation is the rate at which the general level of prices for goods and services is rising, and it can have a significant impact on our daily lives, from the cost of groceries to the price of a new car. In this episode, we will be exploring a PDF file from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Review which provides an international perspective on the recent behavior of inflation. The authors of this PDF file, Silvio Contessi, Pierangelo de Paz, and Li Li, collect inflation data for nine advanced economies and analyze the impact of central bank balance sheet programs on inflation. So, what exactly is a central bank balance sheet program? Well, central banks have a variety of tools at their disposal to influence the economy, and one of these tools is the balance sheet. The balance sheet of a central bank is a record of its assets and liabilities, and it can be used to inject money into the economy or to withdraw money from the economy. The authors of this PDF file analyze the impact of central bank balance sheet programs on inflation in nine advanced economies, the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, the euro area, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, Switzerland, and Sweden. They find that these programs have had a significant impact on inflation in some countries but not in others. For example, in the United States, the Federal Reserve implemented a series of balance sheet programs in response to the financial crisis of 2008. These programs included the purchase of large quantities of government bonds and mortgage-backed securities, which injected money into the economy and helped to stimulate economic growth. The authors find that these programs had a significant impact on inflation in the United States, helping to keep inflation close to the Federal Reserve's target of 2%. However, in other countries, such as Japan and the euro area, central bank balance sheet programs have had less of an impact on inflation. The authors suggest that this may be due to a variety of factors, including differences in the structure of the economy, the effectiveness of monetary policy, and the impact of external factors, such as commodity prices, Overall, this PDF file provides a fascinating look at the impact of central bank balance sheet programs on inflation in advanced economies. It highlights the importance of understanding the complex interactions between monetary policy, the economy, and external factors, and it provides valuable insights for policymakers and economists alike. So, what can we learn from this? So, what can we learn from this PDF file? Well, for one thing, it highlights the importance of central bank balance sheet programs in influencing inflation and economic growth. It also underscores the need for policymakers to carefully consider the potential impact of these programs on the economy and to take into account a wide range of factors when making decisions about monetary policy. Ultimately, the insights provided by this PDF file can help us to better understand the complex dynamics of the global economy and to make more informed decisions about how to manage inflation and promote economic growth. Whether you are an economist, a policymaker, or simply someone who is interested in understanding the forces that shape our world, this PDF file is definitely Hello and welcome to this episode of our podcast. Today, we will be discussing the topic of Liquidity, which is a crucial aspect of any economy. Liquidity refers to the ability of an individual or a firm to convert their assets into cash quickly and easily. In other words, it is the ease with which one can buy or sell an asset without affecting its price. Liquidity is essential for the smooth functioning of an economy. It allows individuals and firms to meet their financial obligations, such as paying bills or making investments, without facing any significant hurdles. However, liquidity can also be a double-edged sword. Too much liquidity can lead to inflation, while too little liquidity can cause a recession. In this podcast, we will be discussing a PDF file titled Liquidity, meaning Measurement Management by Robert E. Lucas, Jr. This article provides an in-depth analysis of liquidity and its importance in maintaining financial stability. The author begins by discussing the role of the Federal Reserve in maintaining low inflation rates and achieving financial stability. He argues that the Fed's ability to control the money supply is crucial in achieving these goals. The author then goes on to discuss the different measures of liquidity and how they can be used to assess the health of an economy. One of the key takeaways from this article is the importance of maintaining a balance between the demand for money and the supply of money. The author argues that if the demand for money exceeds the supply of money, it can lead to a liquidity crisis. On the other hand, if the supply of money exceeds the demand for money, it can lead to inflation. The author also discusses the different methods that the Federal Reserve can used to manage liquidity in the economy. These methods include open market operations, discount rate policy, and reserve requirements. Open market operations involve the buying and selling of government securities to influence the money supply. Discount rate policy involves changing the interest rate at which banks can borrow money from the Federal Reserve. Reserve requirements refer to the amount of money that banks are required to hold in reserve. Overall. This article provides a comprehensive overview of liquidity and its importance in maintaining financial stability. It highlights the role of the Federal Reserve in managing liquidity and the different methods that can be used to achieve this goal. In conclusion, liquidity is a crucial aspect of any economy, and its importance cannot be overstated. Maintaining a balance between the demand for money and the supply of money is essential in achieving financial stability. The Federal Reserve plays a crucial role in managing liquidity in the economy and its actions can have a significant impact on the overall health of the economy. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. We hope that you found this discussion on liquidity informative and insightful. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us. Stay tuned for more episodes on topics related to And welcome to this episode of our podcast. Today, we will be discussing the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Review, third quarter 2014, which explores the history of FOMC dissents and the reasons behind them. The Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis is one of twelve regional reserve banks that make up the Federal Reserve System, which is the central banking system of the United States. The Federal Reserve System was created in 1000. 913 to provide the nation with a safer, more flexible, and more stable monetary and financial system. The Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis is responsible for serving the 8th Federal Reserve District, which includes all of Arkansas and parts of Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Mississippi, Missouri, and Tennessee. The Federal Open Market Committee, FOMC, is the monetary policy-making body of the Federal Reserve System. It is responsible for setting monetary policy in the United States by directing the operations of the Federal Reserve System's open market desk, which buys and sells U.S. government securities in the open market. The FOMC meets eight times a year to review economic and financial conditions, determine the appropriate stance of monetary policy, and assess the risks to its long-run goals of price stability and sustainable economic growth. One of the interesting aspects of the FOMC is the frequency of dissents among its members. A dissent occurs when a member of the FOMC disagrees with the majority decision on the appropriate stance of monetary policy. Dissents can be either formal or informal. Formal dissents are recorded in the FOMC's policy statement and minutes, while informal dissents are not. Dissents can be based on a variety of factors, including differences in economic outlook, Disagreements over the appropriate policy tool to use, or concerns about the risks to financial stability. The Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Review, third quarter 2014, explores the history of FOMC dissents and the reasons behind them. The authors of the paper analyze the frequency of dissents over time and the impact they have on monetary policy decisions. They find that dissents have become more frequent over time, particularly since the 1990s. They also find that dissents are more likely to occur when the economy is in a period of transition, such as during the recovery from a recession or during a period of rising inflation. The authors of the paper also examine the reasons behind FOMC dissents. They find that dissents are more likely to occur when there is a disagreement over the appropriate target for monetary policy, such as the level of inflation or the level of employment. They also find that dissents are more likely to occur when there is a disagreement over the appropriate policy tool to use, such as whether to raise or lower interest rates. The impact of dissents on monetary policy decisions is also explored in the paper. The authors find that dissents can have a significant impact on the policy decision, particularly when they are made by the chair of the FOMC or by a large number of members. They also find that dissents can lead to greater transparency and accountability in the decision-making process, as they force the FOMC to explain and justify its policy decisions. Overall, the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Review, 3rd Quarter 2014, provides a fascinating insight into the history of FOMC dissents and the reasons behind them. It highlights the importance of dissent in the decision-making process and the impact it can have on monetary policy decisions. As we continue to navigate the challenges of the global economy, it is important to understand the role of the FOMC and the factors that influence its decisions Hello and welcome to our podcast. Today, we will be discussing a very important topic that affects us all, the Federal Reserve's exit strategies from quantitative easing. Quantitative easing, or QE, is a monetary policy tool used by central banks to stimulate the economy. It involves the purchase of large quantities of government bonds or other securities in order to increase the money supply and lower interest rates. The goal is to encourage borrowing and investment, which in turn can lead to economic growth and job creation. However, as with any policy tool, there are potential risks and downsides to QE. One of the main concerns is that it can lead to inflation if the money supply grows too quickly. Additionally, there is the risk that the central bank will be unable to unwind its asset purchases without causing disruptions in financial markets. This is where the Federal Reserve's exit strategies come in. In this podcast, we will be discussing a paper by Yi Wen, an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, that examines the effects of the Fed's exit strategies from QE. Wen's paper uses a calibrated general equilibrium model to study the effects of QE on the economy. The model assumes that the Fed can purchase private assets using revenues raised by lump sum taxes or sales of public debt. It also assumes that long-run inflation is fully anchored, meaning that the inflation rate is stable and below the 2% target. Wen's findings suggest that the longer and more massively the Fed can hold private debt on its balance sheet before the adverse financial shocks dissipate, the more likely QE will be able to stimulate aggregate investment and employment. However, the timing and pace of the Fed's exit strategies are crucial. If the Fed exits too quickly, it could cause a sharp rise in interest rates and disrupt financial markets. On the other hand, if the Fed exits too slowly, it could lead to inflation and other economic imbalances. So what are the potential risks and downsides of the Fed's exit strategies? One concern is that the Fed may not be able to unwind its asset purchases without causing disruptions in financial markets. This could lead to a sharp rise in interest rates. Which could in turn lead to a slowdown in economic growth and job creation. Additionally, there is the risk that the Fed's exit strategies could lead to inflation if the money supply grows too quickly. Overall, the Federal Reserve's exit strategies from quantitative easing are an important topic that affects us all. It is crucial that the Fed carefully considers the timing and pace of its exit strategies in order to avoid potential risks and downsides. As we have seen, The effects of QE on the economy are complex and depend on a variety of factors. By carefully calibrating its exit strategies, the Fed can help ensure that the benefits of QE are maximized while minimizing the risks. Thank you for listening to our podcast on the Federal Reserve's exit strategies from quantitative easing. We hope that you have gained a better understanding of this important topic and its potential implications for the economy. If you have any questions or comments, Hello and welcome to our podcast on the state of young adults balance sheets. In this episode, we will be discussing the financial circumstances of young adults in the United States, particularly in the wake of the Great Recession. As we all know, the Great Recession had a profound impact on the economy and the financial well-being of many Americans. But how did it affect young adults who were just starting out in their careers and building their financial futures? That's the question that this PDF file, published by the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Review, seeks to answer. The authors of this file, Lisa J. Dedling and Joanne W. H. Sue, are economists at the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. They use data from the Survey of Consumer Finances, SCF, to examine the ownership and magnitude of particular assets and debt among young adults, defined as individuals 18 to 31 years of age. They also compare the financial circumstances of young adults over time, using data from the 2001, 2004, 2007, 2010, and 2013 waves of the SCF. So, what do they find? Well, one of the key takeaways from this file is that young adults have been hit particularly hard by the Great Recession. For example, the authors find that the median net worth of young adults fell by 44% between 2007 and 2013. This is a staggering decline, and it highlights just how vulnerable young adults are to economic shocks. Another important finding is that young adults are carrying more debt than ever before. The authors find that the share of young adults with student loan debt increased from 34% in 2000 and 1% to 50% in 2013. This is a significant increase. And it suggests that young adults are struggling to pay for the rising costs of higher education. But it's not all bad news. The authors also find that young adults are more likely to own homes and have retirement accounts than they were in the past. This is a positive sign, as it suggests that young adults are still able to build wealth despite the challenges they face. So what are the implications of these findings? Well, the authors suggest that young adults may face challenges in accumulating wealth over their lifetimes. For example, the authors find that young adults are less likely to own stocks and bonds than middle-aged adults, which could limit their ability to build wealth over time. Overall, this PDF file provides a comprehensive and insightful analysis of the financial circumstances of young adults in the United States. It highlights the challenges that young adults face in building wealth and achieving financial stability, particularly in the wake of the Great Recession. However, it also provides some hope for the future, as young adults are still able to own homes and retirement accounts, and may be able to build wealth over time. The authors suggest that policymakers should focus on addressing the challenges that young adults face, such as rising student loan debt and limited access to credit in order to promote greater financial stability and wealth accumulation over the lifetimes of young adults overall this pdf file is a must read for anyone interested in understanding the financial circumstances of young adults in the united states it provides valuable insights into the challenges that young adults face as well as the opportunities that Hello and welcome to our podcast on the topic of parental college savings and how it can help with student loan debt. Today we will be discussing the rising costs of college education and the impact of student debt on households. College education has become increasingly expensive over the years and many students are forced to take out loans to pay for their education. This has led to a significant increase in student debt which can have a negative impact on households Student debt can limit the ability of young adults to purchase homes, start businesses, and save for retirement. It can also lead to financial stress and anxiety, which can have a negative impact on mental health. One solution to this problem is parental college savings. By saving for their children's education, parents can help reduce the amount of student debt their children will have to take on. This can help young adults start their careers with less financial stress and more financial stability. There are several ways parents can save for their children's education. One option is a 529 plan, which is a tax-advantaged savings plan designed to encourage saving for future education costs. Another option is a Coverdell Education Savings Account, which is a tax-advantaged savings account that can be used to pay for qualified education expenses. In addition to parental college savings, There are other ways to address the issue of rising college costs and declining need based aid. One solution is to increase need based aid to make college more affordable for low income students. Another solution is to increase funding for public colleges and universities to reduce the cost of tuition. Overall, parental college savings can be a valuable tool for reducing student debt and promoting financial stability. By saving for their children's education, Parents can help ensure that their children have the financial resources they need to succeed in college and beyond. Thank you for listening to our podcast on this important topic. We hope that this discussion has been informative and helpful in shedding light on the issue of student debt and the importance of parental college savings. It is important for policymakers and parents alike to recognize the value of investing in education and finding solutions to make college more affordable for all students. By working together, we can help ensure that young adults have the financial resources they need to succeed and achieve their goals. Thank you for tuning into our podcast, and we hope to see Hello and welcome to our podcast. Today, we will be discussing a very important topic that affects many young adults in our society, financial fragility. Financial fragility refers to the state of being financially vulnerable or at risk of financial hardship. This can be caused by a variety of factors such as low income, high debt, lack of savings, and unexpected expenses. Unfortunately, financial fragility is a common issue among young adults who are often just starting out in their careers and may not have had the opportunity to build up their financial resources yet. In this podcast, we will be exploring a recent study that sheds light on the financial fragility of young adults and the role of savings accounts in their financial well-being. The study, which was published in the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Review's fourth quarter 2014 issue, analyzed data from the 1996 Survey of Income and Program Participation, SIPP, To examine the savings and asset diversification accounts of young adults over a 48-month time span, the study found that young adults who had savings accounts were more likely to have diversified assets and accumulated more wealth over time. This is because savings accounts provide a safe and accessible way to save money and build up a financial cushion for unexpected expenses. Additionally, having a savings account can help young adults establish a positive credit history which can be important for future financial opportunities such as buying a home or starting a business. However, the study also found that many young adults did not have savings accounts or had very low balances in their accounts. This is concerning because it leaves them vulnerable to financial shocks such as job loss, medical emergencies, or car repairs. Without a financial cushion, young adults may have to rely on high-interest credit cards or loans to cover these expenses which can lead to a cycle of debt and financial instability among adults, What can be done to address the issue of financial fragility among young adults. The study suggests that promoting savings account ownership and usage among young adults could be a promising strategy. This could involve financial education programs that teach young adults about the benefits of savings accounts and how to open and manage them. Additionally, policymakers could consider implementing policies that incentivize savings, such as tax credits or matching contributions for low-income individuals. In conclusion, financial fragility is a serious issue that affects many young adults in our society. However, there are steps that can be taken to address this issue and promote financial stability among young adults. By encouraging savings account ownership and usage, we can help young adults build up a financial cushion and protect themselves from unexpected expenses and financial shocks. Additionally, policymakers and financial institutions can play a role in promoting savings through policies and programs that incentivize savings and provide access to safe and affordable financial products. Thank you for listening to our podcast on financial fragility among young adults and the role of savings accounts in promoting financial stability. We hope that this discussion has been informative and helpful in understanding the challenges faced by young adults in today's economy. Remember, it's never too early to start saving and building a strong financial foundation for your future. Hello and welcome to this episode of our podcast. Today, we will be discussing the topic of Asset Holdings of Young Households, Trends and Patterns. This is an important topic because it affects the long-term economic mobility of young households and their ability to weather temporary financial setbacks. In this episode, we will be exploring the portfolio choices of young households and their decisions to hold various asset types we will be discussing the different types of financial and non-financial assets that young households hold, how their decisions to hold different types of non-housing assets have changed in recent years, and the importance of the composition of asset ownership for long-term economic mobility. First, let's talk about the different types of financial and non-financial assets that young households hold. Financial assets include things like stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, while non financial assets include things like real estate, vehicles, and other durable goods, young households tend to hold a larger share of their assets in non financial assets, particularly real estate and vehicles, than older households. This is because young households are more likely to be in the process of accumulating assets, such as buying a home or a car, while older households are more likely to be in the process of divesting assets, such as selling a home or a car. Next, we will discuss how young households' decisions to hold different types of non-housing assets have changed in recent years. One trend that has emerged in recent years is that young households are holding a smaller share of their assets in real estate and a larger share in vehicles. This is likely due to a combination of factors, including the rising cost of housing and the increasing popularity of urban living, which makes owning a car more attractive. Finally, we will talk about the importance of the composition of asset ownership for long-term economic mobility. The composition of asset ownership can have a significant impact on a household's ability to weather temporary financial setbacks, such as job loss or unexpected medical expenses. For example, households that hold a larger share of their assets in liquid financial assets, such as stocks and bonds, are better able to weather these types of setbacks than households that hold a larger share of their assets in non-financial assets, such as real estate and vehicles. In conclusion, the asset holdings of young households are an important topic that affects their long-term economic mobility and their ability to weather temporary financial setbacks. By understanding the different types of financial and non-financial assets that young households hold, how their decisions to hold different types of non-housing assets have changed in recent years, And the importance of the composition of asset ownership for long term economic mobility, young households can make informed decisions about their asset. It is important for young households to consider their current financial situation, their long term financial goals, and the potential risks and rewards associated with different types of assets when making decisions about their asset portfolios. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast on asset holdings of young households, trends and patterns. We hope that you found this discussion informative and helpful. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to